This is the WRGW News Report, featuring Ryan Anastasio interviewing outgoing President Thomas Lovelock. Welcome to a special edition from the WRGW News Department. I'm Ryan Anastasio, the News Director of WRGW, and I'm here with a very special guest, the 17th President of the George Washington University, Thomas LeBlanc. Mr. President, how are you? I'm doing great, Ryan. How are you? Good. It's great to see you here, and thanks so much uh, for making the time for us. Um, in your last days as President, um, you'll be stepping down um, at the end of this year. Um, can you first tell me why you decided to step down? Um, your contract was going to be up at the uh, later this year. So why, why did you decide to step down at the end of de- December? Well, first of all, I had to think um, carefully about what the university needed coming out of COVID. Uh, really, a lot of the, the work of every university president, every university for the last two years has been dominated by COVID. And I felt like uh, coming out of COVID, we needed someone with a longer horizon than I was prepared to commit to. Uh, so I thought it was an appropriate time, and I informed the board that I'd be stepping down at the end of uh, the academic year. Um, the board then um, started uh, their own uh, process, and in the midst of that, they made the decision to uh, uh, appoint an interim president, and the timing was best for him uh, in January, and I was uh, fine with that. So that kind of moved up my my time uh, a little bit, but uh, I thought it was in the best interest of the university and uh, fully supported it. Mm-hmm. And why do you think they decided to appoint an interim president? Um, I, I know it's going to be someone for about 18 months. Um, do you think like a more permanent replacement would be best for the university? Well, eventually, but I think part of the challenge right now is this is a very difficult time in higher education. As I say, as we're talking about coming out of COVID, we all know we're not really out of COVID. Right. As soon as we thought we were coming out of the original COVID, we started hearing about the Delta variant. As soon as we thought we were coming out of Delta, we started hearing about Omicron. And I think now people are realizing that this could very easily be with us in some fashion for years to come. And that will have a long-term impact on, on institutions, on how people work, the relative balance between remote work and in-person work, uh, and, and all of those things. So. Um, you need leadership that's going to think that through in the long term. And right now, a lot of university leaderships are stepping down. Uh, I think COVID's been uh, uh, very difficult on, on university presidents. I, I can tell you that the, the, the pressure of the kind of decision making you have to make in the middle of a pandemic, uh, it, it's pretty constant. And um, so it's a field in which right now there are going to be a lot of vacancies. Uh, and so the question is, how do you best prepare for that kind of permanent successor? And the board thought this was the best way to prepare for that. Uh huh. So did the board give you the option to continue, or um, were you going to have to leave uh, sometime next year? Uh, the board and I came to a, a, a mutual decision that was in the best interest of the university. Uh huh. Obviously, your tenure has been marked um, by a, a lot of students have been in kind of very vocal. Um, against uh, your presidency. Did that play into it at all? The, uh, there's been a lot of faculty and students that have called your resignation. Um, at one point last year, even the Student Association president called for resignation. Was that in factor of your, in your decision at all? I, I wouldn't say um, necessarily. I mean, I, I work for the board. I work with the board. Um, obviously, I would prefer that people uh, felt better about things, but I also realized we were in a difficult time, and 
any decision that anyone made was going to be criticized, and, and I understood that. Uh, in the age of social media, everybody gets a vote, uh, and it gets, very, gets a lot of publicity. And we had to make some unpopular decisions. I think we also did uh, some important work. So um, I'll let history be the judge. Yeah. And, I mean, you, you've been under attack um, a lot. Um, how has that been personally? Um, I'm sure a lot of these people have never met you, and um, they'll be going on social media calling for your resignation. Was that tough for you and your family? Well, first of all, I met a lot of folks who were very supportive, uh, and I really appreciated that. The supportive people tended to be more personal. Uh, everything else was kind of impersonal. As I say, it's easy to throw rocks in social media. Mm -hmm. It's it's not as easy to, to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. And a lot of those have been very supportive. So there really was a mix out there. I wouldn't say in the end that it was determinative. Uh, you know, nobody wants to be thrown at uh, in that way, uh, I would suggest. But uh, I think it comes with the job. Mm -hmm. You think you could have done a, maybe a better job at kind of engaging with the student community? I know at the start of your presence you had a lot of town halls, um, but since I've been here, I've felt, um, obviously I've been here just under COVID, but I, I mean, I've never met you, I've never seen you, so do you think maybe you could have done a better job at trying to reach out to students and maybe um, engaging with them more? I, I think you can always do a better job. Mm -hmm. I would say that it's hard to compare COVID to anything else. Yeah. Um, Pre-COVID, I had a ton of interactions with students. During COVID, I tried. Uh, I still had office hours. We did them virtually. I had office hours before COVID. We did them in person. I had office hours throughout COVID. Learned a lot from students as part of office hours. Met regularly with uh, student government leadership be before COVID. Did the same thing during COVID, but did it virtually. Um, hosted a few social events uh, before COVID. Had to do it virtually uh, under COVID. So I think I think COVID basically changed everything. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can't, you, you, I could walk around campus, but there was nobody here. Uh -huh. I couldn't go to events because there were no events. I couldn't go to games. There mostly weren't games. And if there were games, nobody was allowed to go. So I, I don't think the engagement with the students can be fairly represented by saying, well, during COVID, this is what happened. Yeah. Um, what do you think your legacy at GW will be? And how do you think you'll be remembered? Well, I really do leave history to the historians. Um, but I would say that if I, if I had to guess, first and foremost, I think every single president over the last couple of years is going to be judged in the history books with how they dealt with COVID. It's the defining experience of our era. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I'm a lot older than you. I can tell you that there are very few things that, that sear across generations, and COVID is one of those. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, World War II was obviously such a thing, and that carried in the minds of many, whatever age they were at the time uh, that the war took place. I, I think COVID is going to sear in the minds of young people because it had such an impact, whether it was how they graduated from high school, how they attended or didn't attend elementary school, how it ex affected their college experience, how it affected their job search. So I think, uh, and, and now we're seeing it's going to have a huge impact on how people work. So there'll, there'll always be a, this is what it was like pre-COVID, this is what it was like post-COVID. And I think that um, we're going to look back in history and ask, how did the universities handle COVID? And just reading the news, you can see that across the country, it was handled very differently by different institutions. Yeah. Uh, partly it was the region that they were in and how they were experiencing COVID. Partly it was the politics uh, that surrounded their location. Uh, but the universities, I think, generally did a remarkable job of trying to continue with their mission.
uh, despite this worldwide pandemic. And so I think that's obviously going to be one, one judgment of history. Um, is, that also, how, is that how you want to re be remembered for your handling of COVID? I, I don't think I get to decide that. Okay. Again, I'll, yeah. I'll let, let the historians decide that. I do think that that's one of the things that people will look at. And, and I would say, uh, and I've talked to a lot of people about this, I think GW collectively, not, not me, collectively, I think we did a remarkable job under COVID. Uh, and I can point to specific examples. Uh, we were ahead on decision making from most of our peers. And by the way, in a pandemic when everyone's questioning science, it's not a lot of fun to be first uh, because the first gets all the attacks, gets all the criticism. And then when people follow quietly later, uh, there's not much news in that. But I think our community handled it remarkably well. Uh, the community writ large embraced the vaccine mandate. Uh, they embraced testing. We developed uh, in-house testing using our own uh, faculty and staff to build that capability. Uh, they embraced the mask mandate, understood that it was critical for safety. Uh, most of the decisions that we made along the way, I think our community really supported. And so it was a community effort, but I do think looking back, uh, the record will show that GW handled COVID remarkably well. Uh -huh. And um, GW was fully online um, for all of last year. You think more of an effort could have been made to try to have some in-person learning? I mean, as someone that was a freshman last year, it was very difficult to start my college experience right. from my childhood bedroom. And I, I've kind of even felt today like I still feel a little bit out of touch with the community because I would never really got that full welcome. Do you think maybe there could have been a better job, um, especially for the first-year students? Again, I think everybody in hindsight can look back and say, well, maybe you could have done this or maybe you could have done that. I, I think with the facts that we had at the time, um, we just took safety as, a, as, as an absolute priority. And we didn't see how to safely create the kinds of experiences you're talking about for 10,000 undergraduates who live around the world. Um, could we have done more to help our international students? Could we have done more to help students who are feeling disconnected, who live far away? You know, possibly, but we didn't see how to do that safely. Uh, anything that involved getting on an airplane at that time was viewed as dangerous. Uh, that's why the airlines weren't, weren't flying as many flights. People weren't traveling because it was viewed as dangerous. We didn't have a vaccine in those early days. So if you caught it, you know, there was too high a, a chance that you could, you could get seriously ill or die from it. So today, with what we know today, you can always look back and say, well, maybe you could have done this or maybe you could have done that. But I'll note that some of the schools that said, oh, no, we're going in person, you know, in the first two weeks, they had to shut down and either send everybody home or have everybody quarantine and now take classes from your residence hall. Uh, we had to ask the question, are we better to err on the conservative side and get a criticism that we could have done more or to err on the other side and get a criticism that you now had to shut down, you've created chaos, you've upset people's lives. We probably erred on the conservative side, uh, but uh, we're taking the advice of our, our medical uh, and public health uh, faculty who were really experts in this. And I don't look back and see any particular decision and go, that was really wrong. Um, I, I don't see that. Uh, could we have done a better and made it a little more complicated and shaded a little bit? Maybe, but no one's explained to me, okay, give me a better option. Tell me what I could have done with the first year students that would have made a difference. Uh, I, I don't know what that would look like. Mm -hmm. What was the toughest decision you had to make during the coronavirus pandemic? 
Well, there were there were several of them, and they were uh, many of them were tough for different reasons. So let me give you a few examples. Um, early in or probably in October November of 2020, we made an announcement that we would not be able to hold commencement on the mall in 2021. And a lot of people complained that we were making that call too early. Um, we should do everything we could to make the commencement. I know how important the commencement is to our students and their families, so it was a tough call. But all the science told us this was going to get worse. The district was not planning for large gatherings. So again, you have to look at the region, the context that you're in. We probably could not have gotten a permit from the National Park Service. And our students made it pretty clear that it's not graduation if it's not on the mall. So we got a lot of uh, criticism for that call, partly, I think, because it was early, but people had to plan. Uh, if we don't make the call early, then everybody's making reservations for hotels and airlines and all that. And then when you cancel later, it just makes that harder. So that one was, that one was a tough decision because it was important to a lot of people. We made it earlier than people thought we needed to make it. But we were pretty confident we had the facts that were going to be relevant, and so we made that decision. Um, another very difficult call was um, was to lay s staff off. That's hard. Yeah. You're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, I, I care about people. No one wants to make a decision like that. But we faced, again, a very difficult set of facts, uh, and, and that was very difficult. Do you, do you regret the decision a little bit? Because um, at, at the start of this year, um, I think a lot of students saw that the facilities in um, a lot of the dorms had not been kept up with, and we had a lot of mold issues. You think it, it might have made more sense to keep those staff on because then you had to go and pay probably thousands of dollars for uh, repairs and also to put students up in hotels? Yeah, the, first of all, um, yeah, I regret that, that that happened, but I don't think that was related to the layoffs. I mean, the problem there was we had water leakage. Um, it was more a deferred maintenance issue than anything else. Um, so I don't think that's related to the layoffs. I, I regret it just because I know the personal pain that's involved there. Mm -hmm. uh, you think maybe more could have been taken out of the endowment to try to keep staff on um, during that difficult time? That, again, makes for a very difficult decision because um, my job with the trustees have the job of balancing the long term and the short term. And again, at the time, and it's always important to remember, what did we know at the time? At the time, we had no idea how long this was going to last. Um, I had very smart people advising me, prepare for five years. This could easily last five years. Well, if you're losing $180 million of revenue every year for five years, you can't solve that problem by going to the endowment. Um, so the Board of Trustees, which is responsible for the long-term fiduciary responsibility of the university, uh, made a decision that that was not how we are going to address this problem. And again, I think it's partly because nobody knew how long it was going to last. And in that uncertainty, we had to move quickly to manage expenses in the face of an immediate drop of revenue. Yeah. I think one of the biggest issues for a lot of students um, during COVID, I, th I think they understood that we probably had to be virtual um, because of the uncertainty. But I think um, a lot of students were upset uh, about the quality of instruction uh, online. And it's obviously not possible to recreate that in-person experience, especially for some majors, um, like some of the science majors, we have to do some in-person labs. Do you, do you think the 10% um, tuition reduction was enough to account for that? Uh, great question. Again, difficult decision. Um, I want to start by just saying I think the faculty did a remarkable job pivoting almost overnight 
from in person to virtual. Um, I, I can't remember if you were here that spring or if you came the following fall. Yes, I, I came the following fall. Okay, yeah. so we were on the cusp of spring break. When, when the major news about COVID broke, it, that was the night they shut down the NBA, mm -hmm. and the next day they shut down the NCAA tournament, and everybody realized this was a national crisis. Our students were preparing to go out for spring break. We didn't know whether they were coming back in a week, a month, or whenever. Um, so it was very hard to prepare for that. And in that spring break week, the faculty had to prepare to move online. And I think they did a remarkable job of it. Can I say that 100% of the courses were seamlessly online in 10 days? No. But I think uh, a lot of faculty moved very quickly and provided high quality educational experience for the rest of that semester and then into the fall and spring. Um, so they, I think they did um, great work on that. Is the online experience exactly the same as the in-person experience? Anybody who's done both knows that's not the case. Uh, by the way, I spent 18 months on Zoom and WebEx calls and at the end of the day, if someone said, you know, we're having a party or something, join us on WebEx. It just looks like another WebEx call. That's yeah. not a party. Um, they said, it's okay, you can pour your own wine. Well, I can pour my own wine without the WebEx call. <laughs> um, but I do think that we did an amazing job continuing to provide education to our students so that they didn't get paralyzed during the pandemic. I held student office hours throughout, and my first question was always, how are your classes going, how's the experience? And there were some differences, but the vast majority of the feedback I received from students was that they're getting a good, good experience in the classroom. They missed all the other things that are a part of college, which I completely understand. Mm -hmm. They miss being in the residence hall. They miss being on campus. They miss going to events. I get that. But I think the thing that we, the, the core thing we had to do was provide the educational experience, and I think we're able to do that. I think some of that uh, is better than, than would otherwise be the case. I think. Uh, I've heard faculty say I can hold office hours at a time when it's better for the students because I'm at home and I'm doing it virtually. Mm -hmm. um, I was holding office hours all day, all, all different hours of the day, whenever the students wanted to meet because it was all virtual anyway. So I think there are some things we learned from that. Even the um, science and engineering that often have laboratories or other things, I think they were remarkably creative. I talked to each of the chairs in engineering and I said, how did you replicate the lab experience? And there was no single solution. They were trying many different things. Some students got engineering kits in a box, and throughout the semester, they picked um, lab parts out of that box. Um, others were more based on simulation. There was just a variety of responses to the need to have hands-on learning. So if you think overall, again, I think it was a remarkable job with no heads up. I mean, there was basically no warning, go online right now. Mm -hmm. And if you look across the country, I think a lot of universities responded in a similar way. And what do you think the main takeaways should be um, from COVID? As you said, it, it was kind of uh, defined your presidency, and I, think, and I think that's what people remember during your time here at GW. But like, what, what should the university do to prepare for something like this in the future, and what should we learn from it? Well, first of all, we're incredibly fortunate because we have a medical school and a public health school. And I'll tell you, one lesson for me is if you're going into a pandemic, it's sure good to have a public health school and a medical school. Yes. Because they, they helped us enormously. Um, I'd say the lesson for the country is uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. We had warnings that this type of thing was possible. And as a country, we did nothing to prepare for it because it would have cost $10 billion. So instead, we spent trillions in responding. 
A lot of experts knew it was coming. They didn't know exactly when. They didn't know exactly what the virus was. But they could see that this was coming, and we weren't prepared for it. Uh, I think as, a, as an institution, we're obviously much better prepared for it going forward. Um, and so I think we're doing everything we can on that dimension. And having a school of medicine, a school of public health, will keep us kind of at the forefront of that. We were able to do some things because we had that expertise that other smaller institutions couldn't do. And so a number of the smaller institutions would follow the lead of the larger institutions that had that capability because they knew we were being informed by these local experts that could uh, really guide us through that. So I think that's, that's very helpful. I think the, um, the almost universal uh, acceptance of the technology is going to be extremely helpful going forward for whatever comes. Uh, for example, I hope we don't have any more snow days. From now on, if the weather's bad, I hope we can just say, okay, we're going to be online tomorrow. And, and people will understand that's the best path forward uh, in light of the weather. So I think we learned a number of things um, from this as well. I think uh, the telework is not going to change. Uh, your generation is not going to work the way my generation did. I think COVID's the dividing line, and you're seeing it already. Where you work, how you work, how often you're, you're required to be connected, if you will. Uh, I think that's all changing. I don't think it's coming back. So everything around us is going to be changed by COVID. And that's why in, I, I often refer to pre-COVID and post-COVID as, as a real defining line. Uh, and I think that's true for a lot of things in our society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're definitely right about having that hospital has been very helpful. And even now, like I, last week, I was able to get my booster shot at the GW Hospital. And it was such an easy experience. And I think we're very lucky um, to have that on campus. Um, I want to move away from COVID from a little bit and um, talk about one of your major initiatives, which was the 2030 plan, which was going to decrease enrollment by 20 percent and then increase the amount of STEM majors at 30 percent. Um, this plan was abandoned um, during COVID. Um, can you talk about why you initially wanted to do that and then why um, it was decided to no longer move forward with that plan? So the 2030 plan was looking strategically at the whole landscape, if you will, of higher education and how to position uh, George Washington University um, for success in that landscape. And that landscape includes changing demographics, um, fewer students, um, going to college, uh, which is a challenge. Uh, demographics in the Northeast, which is declining compared to that, and a major draw for GW mm -hmm. uh, compared to the demographics out West. Um, the focus of our resource base on uh, a smaller number of students to provide a higher quality education, um, to get the highest quality students here, and ultimately to improve the student experience. I mean, one of the things that I was concerned about was we had added 15% to our undergraduate population over a three to five year period of time without actually growing the support structures that support the students that are here. And there was no better sort of visible evidence of that than Thurston Hall. Mm -hmm. um, Thurston Hall was probably designed to accommodate about 800 to 850 students. We were housing 1,150 students there. And you might say, well, how's that possible? Well, I turned doubles into triples. I turned lounges into suites. I turned closets into singles. Um, yeah, you can get 1,150 students in there. But is that the experience that students who come to GW expect? I don't think it was. And I think that was representative of other areas that were under the strain of, of a growth, keep this, a growth of 15% in the student body over that period of time. Mm -hmm. 
So the better part of that plan was just a retreat from that growth. It wasn't to go back to what we were in 1970. It was to go back to what we were five years ago. Um, and, and I think it would also, as I say, significantly improve uh, the undergraduate experience for all students. The 30% for me was a recognition of what was happening anyway. Um, you know, there are folks who said, well, that's not GW. Well, GW has to change and evolve with the rest of the world. And one of the things that's happening is this uh, r incredible interest in STEM subjects. Um, I was just watching uh, one of the talk shows, uh, and, and he said it in a way I, I, I would not say it, but he said, if you're going to college today, you should either major in engineering or engineering or engineering. Um, and, and that's overblown rhetoric, and I understand why he said it. Mm -hmm. But the point is, is that there's enormous interest on the part of students in STEM subjects, whether it's their first major or their second major. I mean, one of the big areas for growth that I saw was students who are studying either politics or international relations who felt like they needed to know more about the STEM side to pursue the career they wanted to pursue. So looking at the data and realizing that GW, on a nationwide basis, was very low in terms of the percentage of students who pursued the STEM major, the idea was to make it possible to support more students doing a STEM major. It wouldn't replace the humanities. I don't want to replace the humanities. It wouldn't replace our strength in political science and policy. It would create more opportunities for students, whether it's double majors or first majors, in the STEM subjects. And this was a trend that was happening anyway. I mean, if you look at the data over the prior probably five, six years, the fraction of students doing a STEM major had gone from 10 or 11 percent to 18 or 19 percent. Mm -hmm. So to have a plan that says take it to 30 percent, which by the way is again looking at the country and saying where is everybody else? Well, everybody else was at 30 percent pretty much. Um, I think was just making a statement about reality anyway. Do you know what the university is at now uh, for percentage of STEM majors? Well, um, I don't have the exact data of today, but yeah. order of magnitude, we're somewhere probably between 22 and 24. Okay. Um, now, there's a couple of different things going on that you have to at least be aware of when you get into the numbers. One thing that's going on is we're creating more opportunity. So now you can do an undergraduate major in public health, and you couldn't do that before. And in the face of a pandemic, a lot of students are going to want to do that. So just on that data point alone, you're going to see a shift uh, in the number of STEM majors. The Elliott School introduced a Bachelor of Science degree in International Affairs, which made it easier for students to do a second major in STEM. So just on that alone, you're going to get a few more points. So, so I, you can see why I argue that this is organic, and it's going to happen anyway. I mean, you can, you can put up a hand and say stop, but that's where the student interest is. It's going to happen. I think it was important for us to recognize it and support it. When COVID came, all this debate really became kind of moot because Overnight, a lot of international students couldn't get in the country, so we didn't have those students coming anyway. Um, a lot of people were concerned about traveling, so it kind of shrunk our placement market. There were just a lot of pressures to enroll any class, far less a class that's a particular size and has a particular makeup in majors. So COVID made this distinction, this refinement, if you will, kind of moot. And we've had you know two consecutive years of, of struggling with the impact of COVID on the emissions process. I don't think it ends the need for, to resolve the question. I mean, we have to have a discussion. What should be the long-term size of the on-campus undergraduate population? 
And there are different views on that, and that debate will be held, and, and we'll see where it lands. I don't think there's a big debate on the STEM, not because it isn't controversial in some quarters, but because it's happening anyway. It's, it's organic to what the students' interests are. Yep. You'd have to put up a stop sign and say, no, I'm not going to let you do public health, and I don't think we'd ever do that. Mm -hmm. um, and when you came into office, you, had, um, you outlined a five-year strategic plan, and the 2030 plan was um, part of that. Um, is there a strategic plan going forward um, for the university? I know a lot of yours was upended by COVID, but like, what should the long-term plans be for the university? That's a, that's a great point, and I'd say the answer is we need to get back to planning. COVID upset not only a plan, it upset most planning. We were day-to-day decision-making kind of in crisis mode on a lot of issues. And we need to get back to longer-term planning as we settle into this so-called new normal. And I'm sure that's, that'll be uh, top of the list for, for the administration and the board um, a, as they move forward in the coming months to start to answer these kinds of questions. Because in the end, if you're not starting to answer these questions, you can't do anything because anything you do will say, well, that depends on the size of the undergraduate population. That depends on the size of the faculty. That depends on whether or not we build this building or that building. And all of a sudden, no decision can be made because you're not sure where you're going. So I think that would be a really important thing for the university to return to. And it was one of the reasons that I felt it would be a, a good time for me to step down because you don't lay out a plan like that and then immediately retire and let somebody else implement it. Mm -hmm. So unless you're committing to the time it would take to start to implement it, it didn't make sense for me to start to drive it. Mm -hmm. And I'm wrapping up this discussion. I'm just curious, um, what are your immediate plans? Um, are, you, are you retiring? Um, or is there another role that you're going to have after um, your presidency here? So I've made no long-term plans. I, I have a sabbatical coming. Uh, my wife and I are going to... Uh, uh, live in Miami for a while. We nice. came from Miami. We, we know the place. We have a lot of friends there. Uh, I'm going to catch up on my reading. In, in the midst of a pandemic, you know, there's a lot of things that go by the wayside, and uh, my reading was one of them. So mm -hmm. I've got a lot of reading, a lot of books that I've started but I haven't finished on my, on my bedside table. What type, what type of books do you like to read? Um, I'm pretty eclectic, but right now I'm into biographies. Um, so I've got, uh, um, uh, I've got the grant the Hamilton, oh, yeah. the Obama, Simone Bolivar. I started, couldn't finish it, and got, got distracted. Um, uh, some of the, uh, I, I did fin manage to finish Steve Jobs. Um, but the, I'm doing a lot of biographies. I like a lot of uh, history, and I like a lot of economics. So mm -hmm. I've been reading a lot of books on economics, too. And uh, what's that, do, you watch, like, do you watch a lot of TV? Are there any TV shows you're hoping to catch up on? Um, well, I do like sports, so I, like sport. I, I, t I tend to watch sports. Right. And, what are your favorite teams? Uh, usually they correspond with where I was living at some time. Mm -hmm. So right now I'm a big uh, Washington Capitals fan because I, uh, I love their hockey team. I'm a Washington Nationals fan, and I'm very proud to say that uh, the Capitals and the Nationals had not won a championship <laughs> until I arrived. So <laughs> you, history will show that I was here when they won. Yes. Now, you couldn't get into cause and effect and all of that. I'll simply note yeah. the correlation. You also had the WNBA and the exactly. soccer, yeah, the exactly. soccer teams, so, yeah, all under uh, while you were here. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't argue that I had much to do with it other than I was one more voice cheering them on. Um, and then I look around, and I'm, I'm still a fan of Miami Hurricane football because I was there for, for a long time. And so I'm watching the coaching carousel and all that's going on with that as well. Um, just lastly, what, what will you miss about GW? Boy, there are a lot of things. Um, 
First of all, my wife and I love living on campus. Just being able to walk to events, um, go to basketball games at the last minute, hear about a speaker, drop in. Um, we've really enjoyed living on campus. We love the fact that when we go for a walk, every time we walk, we pass something historic. Mm -hmm. Whether we go down to the National Mall or up to DuPont Circle or by the Watergate or whatever it is. So uh, we've really enjoyed um, living here. Uh, I will say that commencement on the National Mall is probably the most memorable event in my academic experience at any place. It is so majestic, it's so historic, and it's so um, central to the experience here at GW that um, I, I, I can't compare it to anything else in higher education. And the only at GW moments that we often talk about, you know, I've, we've had our fair share of those as well. And they're, they're called that in part because the confluence of location and connections at GW make them unique, but also because sometimes they're unexpected. You know, I, I think back to pre-pandemic when the president of France, Macron, did a state visit. He said, you know, while I'm there, I'd like to see a university. And we were chosen. And he came here and he did a, a, a talk and a Q&A with students in the Smith Center that was completely unexpected. Uh, and I think the students loved it and they felt like they were part of history during that event. And there's just so many things like that that I think make for a truly unique environment. Mm -hmm. So th that's, uh, that's what I think I'll miss the most. Well, President Block, um, good luck in the future and I appreciate you joining us here today and um, thank you for your service to the university. Thank you, Ryan, it's been a pleasure. And uh, that's all we have here for this uh, special report from the WRGW News Department. I'm Ryan Anastasio, have a nice day.